Welcome to the next edition of the P5 Health Ventures podcast. With me today are Eric Feinstein and Matt Claster, who, uh, among other things, run Northwell Ventures. For those of you that don't know Northwell, uh, they are the largest provider and I believe the largest private employer in the state of New York. Um, and we are about to embark on what I believe will be a very far ranging discussion. So, um, uh, Matt and Eric, uh, one, two, pick them. would love you to just give a little background before we dig into the heart of the conversation. Sure. Good, Eric. You first. Thanks, David. Um, uh, so just by way of background and I'll try to keep it somewhat brief. Um, I've got sort of meandering path to, to where, you know, I am here both on the operational front and on the, on the venture front. Um, but, but kind of going all the way back, I'm, I come from a whole family of healthcare. So, you know, I grew up as a kid, uh, going to the, the emergency department and going into the hospital setting, knowing that, uh, I always wanted to be in healthcare in some way, shape or form. Um, and, you know, in college that originally, you know, translated to, you know, a pre-med and, you know, going down the surgical route, uh, like my, like my father and, um, and I did a complete 180. Uh, I ended up getting into kind of business and economics uh, and finance and, and ended up my first job out of college ended up in the uh, in the private equity and venture capital world. And, and it was this unbelievable experience around building things. And I, I was always a, you know, I like to build. It didn't matter whether it was, you know, building cars or trains and, and it was this engineering mentality. And um, and I found this sort of unique way to combine healthcare and sort of the passions of science and healthcare with with business. Uh, and and it was, you know, from that point that I was able to continue that sort of progression of company building and investing and looking at investment opportunities with a more operational flair. Um, and and so you know over the years progressed. Um, with uh, with different venture capital and private equity firms in in sort of a variety of different areas, um, and I and I had this sort of keen interest around consumerism uh, and you know luxury luxury goods, consumer packaged goods, and understanding the customer. So um, I, I really enjoyed you know kind of going deep and and you know my undergraduate major was behavioral economics. Uh, and so it was this deep understanding of psychology of consumerism. And, and you know, I, I wish I could have planned, uh, you know, how, how and where we are today in healthcare. Um, I, I didn't, uh, but that's exactly where we are today. We are, you know, healthcare is about consumerism. And so, you know, again, followed this meandering path and serendipitously um, after the Affordable Care Act, you know, am now in a unique position where combined sort of consumerism, luxury goods, uh, with this combined medical technology, med tech, medical device, and sort of engineering, uh, investing, and operational background. Uh, so I'll, I'll kind of keep it at that, and then let uh, let Matt give a little context. Uh, thanks, Eric. Thanks, David. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, I'll keep this short. So um, my career started similar to Eric's. Um, my first job out of college, I would say, 
uh, is a little bit more typical of a lot of finance focused uh, graduates from the Northeast. And so uh, when I say I started an investment banking, that won't come as a surprise to a lot of people uh, who are in you know similar finance related fields. So uh, my first four years or so was in a small investment banking and restructuring shop in New York City. Uh, so we did a lot of capital raising, but we also did a lot of operational turnarounds uh, for a lot of family owned businesses and a lot of uh, middle market companies. And so that's really where I got my my start. Uh, getting my hands dirty, working with management, understanding how companies work. Um, but after four or five years, I wanted to make a change. So I went back to business school uh, at NYU. And then that's really where I turned my focus onto healthcare. Uh, and so my job after business school was in big pharma. So I spent about eight years at Pfizer doing corporate development and M&A. Uh, really understanding that landscape, helping them execute on uh, any investment, partnership, uh, collaboration opportunities um, across the entire pharma landscape, including early stage opportunities all the way up to transformative M&A opportunities and multi-billion dollar transactions. And while I love that work, I'm, I'm a very quantitative person, I knew I was missing that element of um, getting my hands dirty and really working with companies and helping them grow. Um, as you can imagine, working at a large corporate, your job is more or less to execute. Um, and you have a very stringent set of things that you're responsible for. And beyond that, uh, you know, you execute and then you pass it along to the next person to, uh, to finish the job. And so after seven or eight years, I thought, you know, where could I use these skills with a, a heavy quantitative background and really a passion for getting my hands dirty uh, in healthcare, you know, where would my next step be? You know, fortunate for me, um, I've had uh, a lot of years uh, to build relationships within the Northwell system. Um, my family's been involved with the system for for decades, um, and I had met Eric about 18 months prior to my joining, uh, just by chance. And so we had stayed in touch over those years. Uh, and I reached out to Eric. We had lunch at a pizza place in Great Neck. And, uh, you know, fortunately for me, you know, Northwell Ventures needed somebody on the portfolio side because uh, the portfolio was growing. They needed they needed help managing the investments that they had uh, recently put out. Uh, and the fund was growing, too. They wanted to put new money out. So they needed somebody. My background, uh, we thought fit fit in really nicely. You know, my my close connection to the system uh, was added incentive for me. Uh, to come and help them grow that portfolio and help Northwell diversify their revenue stream. And so I joined Northwell Ventures uh, almost two years ago now. Um, and it's really been a wonderful partnership between Eric and I. I think we our strengths really play off each other. Uh, and again, we have different backgrounds, but I think they're very complementary. So it's been two years. Uh, we've made a lot of progress on the portfolio. Uh, obviously, these are challenging times now, which we're all navigating through. But so far, uh, you know, we're holding steady and uh, it's been a wonderful experience and we're excited for the future. Great. Uh, well, you know, we actually first met about, I believe it was about a year and a half ago when I was uh, due diligencing Conversa for second time. And, uh, and so we'll we'll cover some you know 
We'll cover some ground from Conversa, another company that 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 I wound up investing in that that Northwell has also taken a very big role in with Clarapath. Um, but maybe maybe take a step back and and talk about what you see from the provider side um, as investors and what and and build a little background on on what you think. Um, companies need to do to succeed in healthcare and, and, and take a little, um, latitude on, 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 on what you want to say and, and, and how you think we should, um, discuss this. Sure. I, so David, I, I want to go kind of way back to the, the beginnings. Um, you know, I'm, I've been here about five years, almost, almost five years now. And, when I came in, uh, you know, Northwell had asked me, uh, how, how do we, how do we build a, a venture capital function? So, you know, we have this mission driven nonprofit healthcare delivery network that is really best in class in, in so many respects and has this tremendous scale. And we have assets throughout the system, clinical assets and intellectual property assets. And, and it's finding ways to maximize value. So because we are this mission-driven nonprofit, you know, it, it gives this connotation that we, you know, we don't need money. And the reality is we, as a, hospitals, need money. Uh, extremely high cost structures. What people don't really understand about hospitals, and, and in particular uh, in major cities, is that the cost of living is extremely expensive. Pieces of equipment, medical devices are extremely expensive. We have to provide care. We are not like a business that can turn customers away. We are not like a business that can just raise a price. Um, you know, everything is incredibly regulated. We have bureaucratic steps by imposed by the government. We are at the intersection of medical device firms, pharmaceutical firms, managed care companies, consumers, uh, the government, and I, I, you know, I could add, I, I could add a, a number of others with clinicians, um, you know, doctors, nurses, and every single one of those stakeholder groups has a different set of competing interests, and so, you know, it's a very, very delicate and, and tricky balancing act to walk in in hospitals and healthcare. And so we have a very high cost structure. Most hospitals operate in sort of a, in, in good times, pre-COVID, in sort of this one to three percent EBITDA margin. Now, if anyone, you know, recognizes that most distributors operate in sort of that six to 10% EBITDA range, you'd realize that, wow, we are, we're not all that profitable. Um, and so all, any dollars that, that we do make, gets reinvested for growth purposes and fulfilling our kind of clinical mission. So about, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there was, you know, a push toward finding alternative streams of revenue uh, to help diversify uh, reductions in reimbursement rates. And that's been the trend for the last 10 years is how do how does the government you know, Medic Medicare, Medicaid, how do we cut reimbursement rates on procedures? How do we decrease overall healthcare spend? 
Now that's a problem for us because we are at the end line caring for the patients and, and, and we just, we get squeezed. There's a lot of people that get paid in that process. And so, uh, you know, there was this push to find alternative streams of revenue to fix leaky roofs, to buy, you know, new pieces of, of capital equipment and, and also change the culture you know, bring new pieces of technology into the clinical workplace that help uh, help clinicians do their job in a more effective and efficient way uh, and enforce and, and us, enforce the hospital system to think about delivering care in a unique and different way. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of ways that, that we have done that through clinical joint ventures, through um, just through innovative, you know, technology transfer uh, mechanisms, um, creating intellectual property and, and spinning that out of this health system to investing in external companies that we bring into the walls of the health system and incubate. Uh, that is really kind of the crux of, of where Matt and I sit. And it was about five, you know, four and a half, five years ago, where we really started to ramp up our investing, our direct investing into externally facing companies uh, and finding progressive uh, and technologically you know, innovative businesses that have a really cool concept or idea, uh, have a little bit of proof of concept that we can then bring into the walls, further refine, incubate, test, and hopefully produce a product, service, or technology that we will use as a customer to fulfill some mission-critical strategic need, as well as building a business that has the potential to make money that we can then put back into the health system to, again, uh, diversify revenue streams. Uh, and so, you know, we, we look for opportunities that sort of fit this strategic return and financial return parameter. Uh, most corporate VCs focus just on the strategy piece. We focus, oh, and, and uh, I'd say institutional VCs focus obviously on financial return. There is no strategic element to it. We, if you think of the Venn diagram, we underwrite the middle section of strategic and financial return. That is a very challenging thing to do uh, and to do it well. We have been operating like that for almost five years. And every investment that we make has to enable the mission and strategy, first and foremost, has to enable us to increase access to care, provide higher quality of care, higher levels of efficiency, better patient experience, uh, bare minimum has to do that. But it also has to have a institutional grade investment opportunity behind it. And in and, and finding opportunities with, you know, the intersection of those two, it, it's not an easy thing to, to come by. So, uh, uh, Eric, that, Eric that, that's, that's a great point uh, on, on how difficult it is to actually find opportunities that fit both of those priorities. And I will say, because it, it touches on a point here, that doing this job is more than just sourcing uh, good deals. Half the job is, I would say, more of an art 
and that is facilitating across a really complex enterprise, across many different functional groups, and being able to speak different languages, uh, so to speak, no pun intended, you know, uh, uh, understanding uh, uh, clinical care enough where you can converse with doctors, understand how they do their work, how whatever product or service that we're looking at may or may may not change their workflow uh, and how it may change how they deliver care. I mean, as many people know, yeah. You know, that's an excellent point because this is where, this is the, the conundrum that I think a lot of investment and venture capital firms face and entrepreneurs face. And, and this is not a knock on Silicon Valley, um, but, but I, do, I do generally you know, see this often where you have a tech entrepreneur, and, and this is specifically for HIT, healthcare information technology. You have a tech entrepreneur that has never spent a day in their life inside the walls of a hospital or have accessed a clinician. And they take a consumer-focused technology or tool and they say, you know what? There's a massive market opportunity here in healthcare, but they don't really understand workflow. They don't understand how this translates into a healthcare setting. So they take this tool, which they say, well, yes, productivity-wise, you have to adopt something like this. And then they go, they build this unbelievable UI. They build all of these you know, consumer-grade elements, take it to the hospital, and there's zero traction. And they have no background in the healthcare in the healthcare realm. They don't understand sales cycles. They don't understand which in the hospital and provider world are long, very long, and can kill a business, particularly a startup. And so it's this this disconnect between you know that uh, that lack of healthcare experience and finding the opportunities that kind of you know, are good financial investments and also hit that strategic return. So Matt, you're, you're spot on in, you know, talking about navigating incredibly complex uh, and matrixed organizations is such a significant portion of, of, you know, what we do. And that impacts everything in these, you know, in these investments, working capital wise, um, you know, dilutionary wise, and so now, you know, you, you take that one step further to when you think about structure and valuation. I mean, all these things are tied together. And I, I know you know that, but um, but I think you're spot on. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I would also hammer home is that, you know, any any venture function within provider groups, uh, you know, and, and there are several of them across the country, um, in order to get things done, y- you need a clinical champion to stand behind whatever opportunity you're looking at. And so it's up to the people running your funds uh, to make sure that they're they're communicating and understanding the value prop appropriately because we're the ones that are sitting in between the company and the providers uh, and the clinicians. And so what I mean by that is, you know, we need to be able to understand the workflow, the terminology, how it's going to improve clinical care and be able to communicate that effectively to our clinicians uh, because, you know, a lot of times we may not understand uh, a particular uh, a particular therapeutic area enough to really communicate 
what this product or service is going to do to change and better clinical care. And in those cases, the providers really aren't interested. And so we've kind of lost the opportunity to gain a champion, to stand behind, you know, a company that we want to invest in. Uh, And so it's hard and it's more of an art than a science. So it's more than just sourcing deals, which is where I think a lot of provider groups uh, fall short in this business. Hmm. Uh, you think maybe it's worth going into Conversa and how we first met, um, or, or why we first met, we don't have to talk about how we first met. Um, but, but the role that, that Clarapath took in really helping make the company, um, and, and taking a board seat and Eric, I know you're an observer and I'm an observer on the board and, uh, would would love to hear kind of how you brought that into the system, um, and as you know, as people have listened, I've I've interviewed Murray and um, and and I you know it seems to be uh, quite impactful on your on the operations at Northwell, uh, growing all the time. Obviously, COVID set back everything, but things are opening up again. So, uh, Eric, maybe talk about how you championed that and 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 got that integrated into uh, Northwell. Yeah, sure. It, and it's a great example and case study on, on on having conviction about a investment in a thematic investment area. Um, I, I was always passionate and, and because of my consumer background, and you read the kind of the tea leaves, you see that healthcare and the communication mechanisms, and I'm sure everyone's experienced it. You go to a doctor's office, you fill out, uh, a, you know, on a, you know, on a on a pad, um, a checklist, and pen and paper. And then you know maybe they call you before, maybe the the, the physician's office calls you before, maybe they don't, and, and you just kind of step back and you say, "Wow, this is incredibly antiquated." Um, and, you know, there are some reasons why, you know, and, and people need to understand that healthcare has sort of ingrained uh, technological tools. And there, there's there's rationale and reasons why, because at the end of the day, you're caring for patients, a uh, patient's life. And you have to you have to have sort of uh, security and, and, you know, reliability of data and all that. But, uh, um, you know, I, I kind of stepped back and I said, you know, we need to get into the 21st century. Um, we have to find ways of communicating in a more effective way. And, and so I, I actually met, um, you know, the two founders of, of Conversa, Weschel and, uh, and, and uh, Phil Marshall. And I was immediately struck by the simplicity of, you know, the UI. Um, it was literally like a text messaging based platform on the iPhone, you know, and but you you could have a clinically a very robust clinically relevant conversation, and it was entirely automated. And I said, this is exactly what we need. And we have tools like you know the the robots that you know like you know the text message you and 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 I never found that personal. I never found it effective because you're talking to a machine. The way you know the content was structured. Is, is in the simplicity of it is what struck me because the back end was incredibly complicated. And 
the two people that, that founded the business, one was a consumer focused, you know, marketing executive and, you know, five times serial entrepreneur has sort of been through healthcare and healthcare technology. The other came from Press Ganey, came from WebMD, was a surgeon by background and was a healthcare person. So this is someone that deeply understood sort of healthcare as a clinician in healthcare operations. And in the way the, the kind of the, the phrasing of, of, of certain messages, it was very much like a conversation, hence the name Conversa, Conversa Health. And that simplicity struck me. So I, you know, developed a, uh, an investment theme where I said, if I can take and create a communication pipe and allow all of these other technologies to come in and connect into that pipe, I now have created a robust way to advance clinical conversations outside of the clinical care environment. And this is obviously all pre-COVID. Um, but I said, th this is absolutely the future. Connect with patients, with clinicians on their terms and have clinically relevant conversations on a patient's terms. And, you know, if they want to respond at 10 o'clock at night, that's fine. Let them, let them do that. And that's sort of been the societal trend. Uh, and so we, you know, we, we looked at Conversa as a way uh, initially as a care management platform, you know, very clinically focused care management type of platform. And we said, well, how do we link and bridge sort of clinical care to administratively focused conversations? How do we create this communication layer and pipe and connect other things in? And, and so for the past two and a half, actually longer than that, uh, three and a half years, uh, you know, we've led two of their investments, uh, their Series A and their Series B, I led both of those. And we have taken a different approach toward product development. So we've invested in these companies to help support, you know, working capital needs like every business needs. But frankly, the more valuable aspect is leveraging our internal clinicians, leveraging our subject matter experts, and bringing them into product development conversations. So identifying use cases for growth, and then helping build a conversation set in a very medically literate, robust way. Uh, so it's designed by Northwell Health, for Northwell Health to use, but it's done in a, and this is not a knock on large corporate or, or Northwell at all, um, but building things inside large corporates are very challenging mm -hmm. in, in kind of large kind of bureaucratic organizations, innovative, progressive product development, you know, uh, <laughs> the, the product development is challenged in, in large organizations and you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter where you go. Um, so, you know, we, we, we basically use these companies uh, as a way to advance rapidly, iterate quickly, fail fast, learn from it and continue that iteration process while leveraging sort of the best of the internal subject matter experts. Great. Yeah, I mean, how how far do you, do you know offhand? Um, 
how far integrated it is. You know, I, I know it's it's been moving in oncology and GI, um, and uh, and uh, off the top of my head, David, I I can't recall how many use cases, but it's upwards of twenty. From um, you know, connecting with a patient, what Conversa does exceptionally well is manage complex care and and manage that complex care, but provide deeper deeper information to the clinician to manage that care. Uh, and then also it has the ability to tie that to patient reported outcomes. Um, and that's on the clinical front. There's a whole nother layer to, to, to just interacting with patients on the administrative and the marketing front. It's connecting with patients. It's having conversations with them to let them know that they have access to certain resources. It's a communication pipeline. And, and we saw this um, now, you know, as we're squarely in sort of COVID, we couldn't connect. You know, you, you couldn't connect with people in person. So you had to connect electronically. And we were, you know, fortunate enough to have some of these technological tools like telehealth, like, you know, like Conversa. So we constantly have touch points. And, and, and then there's a further, you know, you know, layer down the road where we can add in, um, you know, other aspects to, to the Conversa technology and layer in, you know, remote patient monitoring and, and all of these other, uh, all of these other, you know, wearables and things like that, that all connect in to create sort of a really rich, robust data set to help clinicians, but also help patients. Yep. Eric and, and David, on that point of, of integration, um, it also speaks to the, the level of effort, I think, that we've gone through to integrate this solution into a large system like Northwell has been a massive, massive effort. Uh, and, and for good reason. I think there was a healthy dose of skepticism um, around the solution and, and, and the impact that really it was going to have. And, and for good reason. I mean, in healthcare, which is different than most other businesses, you know, you can't, you can't screw up because you have, you know, someone's patient's life on the other, on the other side of it. And so there's usually, um, there's usually, I don't want to say skepticism, but hesitation in adopting new solutions that may or may not, uh, you know, affect somebody's, somebody's care. And so, you know, a lot of people feel like, you know, you just write a check and sit back and see how it goes. But really, when we write the check, especially in this case, the work really just gets started. Because um, we've spent the better part of, you know, two or three years educating the system, educating our administrators, educating our clinicians on the value prop. Of, and, you know, as we do that, you know, more, more service lines actually uh, have adopted it. So um, there's been starts and stops, but we're, we're in a really good place right now. And I think we're all, we're all really excited as an organization about what this, uh, what this solution can really do for us. Great. Um, before I go on to Clarapath, because it's a great, I have a great lead into that, because uh, I'd like to talk about that, as I, as I told you before we started recording. Um, perhaps you could give an update on a uh, provider-based venture in this COVID world and what you're seeing uh, amongst your peers and, um, and, and how COVID itself has impacted 
uh, healthcare investing and and new companies coming along. I mean, budgets are tight, et cetera. So yeah, Matt, why don't, why don't you lead off on that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's twofold. Um, I think on the one hand, COVID has exposed um, flaws in the system, whether or not it's uh, care coordination, whether or not it's in the lab, whether or not it's in how hospitals are designed and how isolation rooms are designed, whether or not it's in uh, hospital-acquired infections and how you disinfect your, your ORs or in revenue cycle and cash flow management. And so in that respect, um, provider venture groups, I think, are using this opportunity uh, to jump in and really invest in companies that they think will you know, may, or, may, or, may get adopted a little bit faster than in usual times, because I think hospitals are really eager uh, to fix those flaws in the system, especially now. On the other hand, uh, it should come as no surprise that hospitals that are in hotspots in this pandemic have really suffered financially, um, shutting down uh, sh- shutting down most of their normal operations. And so on the one hand, there's a lot of opportunity. On the other hand, there's this, uh, you know, flight to safety almost. And so I would say the bar has risen in terms of what opportunities we're looking at, uh, what kind of return on that investment we can generate and in how much time we can, uh, we can actually uh, uh, see some kind of a uh, value generating event. Uh, but on the other hand, I think people are really eager to deploy cash into the opportunities that we think we can plug some of these holes. Eric, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I think I think that's spot on. You know, we are looking at strategically relevant opportunities right now, and and in the interesting, you know, conundrum is that you know we have financially have been absolutely clobbered, just absolutely crushed. Uh, you know, when you have your your revenue effectively go to zero, you know, after, you know, being at 100 percent, you know, one day and literally going to zero, you know, in the corresponding, you know, few days, um, that is just a tremendous financial hit when you have a, a high fixed cost structure. So, you know, on one hand, we we sit here and we say, this is the opportune time to be investing in different technologies, you know, devices uh, and, and and finding solutions to these strategic problems because it's, it, you know, I'd say Northwell actually has done an exceptional job at managing the supply chain and, and, and other, uh, in other areas, other hospitals around the country have not been so lucky. I mean, you know, you think about, the uh, the news and and the media releases around PPE and um and, and those you know those were very real and so it highlighted major major challenges in in the way hospitals operate uh, and it, I mean these are you know national healthcare infrastructure plays so it it has caused us to rethink you know what we look at how we look at and the returns that we require given the, you know, given the financial constraints that are now put on us. So if, you know, we were operating in a traditional fund capacity, we would tell you, uh, at least I would tell you that this would be the 
most optimal time to be looking at at different opportunities. Uh, hands down, we have identified so many strategic areas of need that uh, that that will be here now and will continue to be here down the road that represent strategic investment opportunities, but also fulfill you know real strategic problems that our hospital operators face. And, and then correspondingly, have the ability to produce a tremendous financial return. Um, so, you know, what we have done is change a little bit uh, of, uh, you know, the, the stage of company that we look at. Um, you know, as an example, we have and are looking at COVID related opportunities, but but not just, you know, COVID, uh, you know, a COVID product without any upside potential. We look for, you know, a COVID product solution today that has the ability to expand and grow into other areas. So, you know, case in point, um, you know, we're, we're in conversations with a company that can, you know, through image recognition, can measure heart rate, pulse ox, uh, you know, uh, and a host of other vital signs, temperature, uh, and when you think about the applications of that, you can effectively put this in any location, say an emergency department, constantly manage and triage patients as they walk through the door. Maybe some patients have a, a higher, you know, a higher temperature. You can segregate and, and you can start to triage patients in a more effective way. And then you can, in real time, measure pulse ox. You can measure all of these other elements. And so that's immediately applicable to, you know, kind of our current COVID world and getting patients back into the hospital, making clinicians feel safe. But there's a future of allowing employers to do this. And, and, it's, and it's broader than just the hospital setting. Um, this is applicable to every employer to get people back into the workplace and have security and safety. And so, you know, we look for tools right now that offer that sort of expanded capability, uh, but also fit a strategic solution in need right now. All right. Uh, speaking of strategic solution in need, um, when we were uh, finishing up the round with Conversa over a year ago now, um, you said, you know, you really got to look at Clarapath. This is another company we've been very involved in. And, and I said, I really don't want to look at it. It doesn't, doesn't seem to really necessarily interest me. Yeah. And uh, you're like, no, 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 no. You got to trust me on this. You did say that. You said, I, I don't, I don't, I don't like those types of investments. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and I got pulled into the Eric Feinstein vortex. Um, and then, uh, and then quickly discovered that the, the the, the value because of the need, but may, maybe you, and I really want to get uh, uh, you and Partha, the founder back uh, together, but maybe talk about, about how that came to Northwell and then your subsequent involvement. Because um, it's a fascinating story on, on both uh, you know, a great idea that came out of need um, from a remote location um, and got pulled in and actually solves a major problem, not just for 
provider or labs, but at, in this case, Northwell's lab business, but for an entire industry of, of pharma and, and, um, and, and, me- and medicine in general in the lab business. A- absolutely. Uh, I, I think, I think ClarePath exemplifies everything that we've just talked about for the past, you know, 40 minutes around, around using and leveraging your strategic investor as a sandbox and, and pulling out sort of the best of uh, a strategic investor. And, uh, and I, I mean, going way back, I, I mean, the story really starts with, um, with a, uh, a scientist at, at Cold Spring Harbor Labs, uh, Dr. Partha Mitra. And, and it's like every good sort of entrepreneurial story of, of, how, of how things start, where, you know, y- you are trying to accomplish some project. And in the process of trying to accomplish some objective, you stumble across uh, something that is just a problem. And you, you find a solution and you, you attempt to fix uh, in order to reach your sort of end, end target. And that's exactly what happened with Dr. Mitra as he was, um, he, he was working on a brain architecture project. Uh, and, and I'm going to do him a, a disservice. Uh, so I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to have him tell the story directly. But, you know, he, he was effectively mapping uh, the neural circuits of, uh, of, of, the, of the mouse brain. Um, and he was injecting sort of a, a tracer virus uh, into, um, into these mouse brains and then was sacrificing the mouse at, at different points in time and then um, taking the brain out. I'm sorry, this is a little graphic, but, but taking the brain out uh, and, uh, and then running pathology studies uh, on that brain to see, you know, what the effects of, of, of certain drugs and, and compounds were on that brain to try to map sort of neural circuits and, um, and just try to gain a better understanding. Um, and what that led to was, wow, this is a highly inefficient process. To, after you take out, take out that brain, um, the core underpinnings of pathology is a practice of, of tissue processing. You have to process the tissue. Uh, and, and that's a, uh, an area of pathology called histology. And, and so oh, it's all around tissue preparation and, and, uh, and processing. And, and this process uh, is something that is rather dull and boring. Most people don't understand. It's the guts of any laboratory, uh, any clinical laboratory around the country. Uh, or in the world, I should say, uh, and it's the underpinnings and guts of every drug development uh, pipeline. And so um, he was going through this process of, of of sectioning. It's called sectioning, sectioning the the brain, and realized that he had to put all of these cross sections back together and digitally recreate a three D structure. But the problem is everything was done by hand. And so there was this tremendous variability, uh, first and foremost, of doing this in the existing way. Uh, And so the second problem was was that the sheer volume that he needed to accomplish 
what you know ordered in the I, I believe the millions. And so actually doing this in a manual way was just I, I mean just cost prohibitive, time prohibitive. So they they designed a process which um, and, and sort of perfected a process that had been out there uh, called tape transfer technology. And, and instead of the, and I, I won't go into the, the deep detail of uh, the existing process, but um, you know, there's an existing uh, way of doing this in a water, it's called the water bath method. And, and they effectively take a piece of tape, they roll it on a block of tissue, and then they cut a cross section of that tissue and then apply it to a glass uh, glass slide. Um, the, because of their process, they get the same, they, they can sort of longitudinally go through, say, a brain, uh, and every single tissue is in the same orientation on, uh, on that plane. And so now they can, you know, recreate that cross, uh, sorry, that 3D recreation of the brain uh, in a consistent way. And, and, uh, and, and then they developed a, um, a, a more of an automated kind of process to do this. So that was sort of the genesis of Clarapath. And you have to ask Partha because he'll give you a much better description. Um, Clarapath was the commercial offshoot from that research work that was going on in Cold Spring Harbor Labs. Um, Northwell has a research affiliation with Cold Spring Harbor, very deep ties, both on Long Island. Uh, Cold Spring Harbor, one of the kind of preeminent, if not the preeminent, uh, research uh, research institutes in, in the world. And, uh, and, and, you know, one of our uh, top pathologists uh, and the head of our laboratory um, caught wind of what was going on here and, and became a scientific advisor uh, and, and helped uh, the company think about this and said, wow, you guys are really on to um, something that could transform histology and pathology. And, and, and so that was sort of the, the beginning of uh, the Clarapath story was um, taking this process and fully automating, creating a, a smart robotic machine that can help ma uh, automate a manual process in histology today. And I can I can go deeper if you want, but um, I, there's a lot of complexity there. So I'll I'll take the cue from you, David. Yeah, no, I I mean I would simply add that that um, the most the most simple thing from a a uh, patient perspective, you can take all the different stakeholders. So well, take a step back. If you're a pharma and you want to test something in tissue, whether it's animal or human tissue you are going to inject it, expose it, or do whatever you're going to do to it. And then you need to take that sample and then put it through uh, and, and then have someone look at it. Uh, and we're still a long way from computers automatically deciding what they see, which could be a whole other discussion maybe when we sit down with Partha. But this actually takes all the tissue cutting, which is very time consuming, and there's a massive labor shortage. So that, that's one of the most interesting things to me is the desperate need for this. Um, in the, in the, from a patient perspective, which is what interested me because I've been through this before when I have had pathology done is the long wait times, which is primarily due to a labor shortage. Um, and the fact that 
that someone of infinitely less skill set, which means infinitely more people could fill that labor spot, theoretically at least, can take a whole bunch of cartridges. So, so someone goes in, right, for the average person to just think about it if they haven't been exposed to it yet. You go in, you have a sample taken, a biopsy. The biopsy is sent to the lab. They gross it up and they put it in, in wax, which preserves it. At that point, right, and I'm, I'm summarizing for, for the layman, at that point, that needs to then be cut and put on a slide, right, and then stored. And there's all the laws that, that um, yeah, about storing these for, what, 20, 25 years, um, the, both the wax and the slides. Um, and I know you could, for lack of a better term, literally wax poetic on, on, on the amount of, uh, of excess reinforced concrete needed to store all these slides. Um, but but that, that it's a huge bottleneck. And I've waited uh, when I've had pathology done upwards of 10, 12 days to get a report back. So um, maybe maybe talk just a little bit more about the direct impact yep. on workflow. And then and one of the critical things, maybe just keep it to Clarapath, but think at a, a you know, but talk about it on a higher level on how it fits in the workflow, which is something that Matt brought up earlier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, uh, let me let me start by saying there there are two core fundamental you know service lines within within medicine to be able to practice medicine. It's pathology and it's radiology. I mean, you have to have imaging and you have to have pathology. With, without those two things to provide evidence and 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 sort of you know give direction on treatment pathways, you know. Uh, a GP is just kind of shooting in the dark or an oncologist is just, you know, they're, they're, they're shooting from the hip. So this is, I mean, those are two fundamental aspects of practicing kind of clinical care. And on the re and I think you, you mentioned this, but on the research front, every single drug that goes through a development life cycle has to be tested for safety and efficacy. And the, I mean, that, that preclinical drug development toxicology area uh, is, I mean, it, it's, it's enormous. Every drug has, to, every compound has to be tested. So, uh, you know, in rabbits, dogs, mice, non-human primates, et cetera, pigs, uh, they, they go through this process where uh, th those animals are dosed uh, at varying rates. The animals are sacrificed. The organs are harvested. And then they are, the process uh, is exactly the same as what you just described uh, and is then uh, looked at by a veterinary pathologist to understand the effects of that drug and that dosage rate and, and all of that on those internal organs, um, again, for safety uh, purposes. So that process doesn't change whether you do it for, you know, a pig or, a, you know, a, a, a mouse or you do it for a human. That process is exactly the same. And so when, when you know, we think about the shortage of histotechnologists, the average age in the industry is about fit, probably about 55 years old. Uh, and, and I'm speaking, you know, kind of generally here in North America, um, but about 55 years old. Uh, and there's not that many schools and people entering this profession. Uh, this used to be, you know, 25 years ago, 
this used to be the the area where uh, you could train, um, you know, Joe the garbage man off the street and train him as a certified histotechnologist. Uh, today, because of increased regulation, you can't do that. Um, you know, I think I believe now you have to have a, a BS in biology or chemistry, uh, and then have advanced training after that. I believe of three, roughly three years. So when you talk about four years plus another three years, I mean you, you're almost at the time frame of an MD when you when you think about it. Um, and 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 so we have this shortage of people entering this area. And we have people exiting the, you know, this workforce. That's a problem because our supply of talent is dwindling. Uh, we also have a demand of tests that are continuing to go up. Higher incidence of cancer, aging population. Uh, we've got a we've got a really big problem when the demand for tests is going up, yet we have a supply of talent that's going down. You've got you've got shorted challenges, and so we we face that here today, um, even at say our Northwell uh, facility and and in and, and labs around the country, um, we're at you know reduced levels. Most of these histotechnicians have two or three jobs that you know these these folks are working, uh, and so it's a it's a well paying profession, uh, but people are tired; they make mistakes. Uh, and there's just, there's just a lack of, you know, people to go around. So, you know, to solve that, you really have to, there's only two ways to solve it. You either increase your funnel size of people entering the workforce and relax regulation, but that takes, you know, five plus years to actually filter through if you even get there. Or the second is automating this manual process. So what we have done at, at Claripath is automate this manual process and automate that human histotechnician. So as people exit the workforce and there's no one to backfill, we can now insert a machine and, and help augment sort of the, the demand for testing. Um, all, of the, all of what we're building and developing here is designed internally by, you know, our our you know, our entire advisory board, which, you know, we've got our Northwell subject matter experts. We have Columbia uh, pathologists and some subject matter experts. We have some unbelievable, uh, unbelievable pathologists and, and histotechnicians that are uh, deeply involved in what we're creating because they are the end customers. So this, everything that we build in our building has to integrate into that workflow, which, you know, I think Matt pointed out is so important. Any change to workflow, whether it's positive or negative, has an impact on product adoption. Even if it's positive, this is, and this is what the technology guys don't get. Uh, they'll say, well, it increases productivity. It increases you know, ROI. But what you don't understand is that clinicians are creatures of habit. There's process there for a reason. Why? Because there's a, a patient at the end of the line. And, and so any change to workflow is a change, positive or negative. If it's negative, we'll just wipe it away because that investment will, and that product will, will never succeed. Even if it's a positive change, there's still a change. So that has implications to work, uh, to, to working capital and, and other, you know, business oriented, 
uh, aspects. So Eric, 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 what you just said speaks to the value of uh, of Northwell's affiliation with this, and especially with the lab, having access to a, a world class laboratory and understanding best practices and the voice of the customer and what you know, real histotechs need or what real lab directors need to make this device the most efficient uh, uh, machine to automate this process is invaluable. And I mean, frankly, correct me if I'm wrong, there's no way we would be where we are without having that lab and the access to the histotechs and the lab directors there. I absolutely 100% concur with that. Um, th- this is a incredibly complicated space to be in, in general. And without, without leveraging your subject matter expert in the sandbox, um, th- this is virtually impossible. And there have been some big, big firms that have tried to accomplish, uh, accomplish this. It is not a easy exercise in sort of robotics and engineering. It's not an easy exercise around clinical workflow. Uh, you have to combine all of these elements together and navigate it. And it's very, very complicated. And and without, uh, I mean, I, I'm gonna be very blunt, without Northwell uh, and, and Columbia and the scientific and cl- clinical experts that we have at the table, and not just sitting on an advisory board, you know, saying do this or do that. This is deep within the organization of, you know, picking the brains of you know your your lab director on the front lines, a histotechnician that is doing this every day on a clinical you know on the clinical work floor, um, and asking them, what, you know, would you prefer to you know pick up your slides from the top or from the side? That is absolutely invaluable. And companies spend enormous consumer focused companies spend enormous sums of money on exactly that trying to run focus groups, trying to understand, you know, design requirements. And the truth is they will never, they will never have the level of access and the level of understanding of building a product from the inside and, and being able to leverage sort of the strategic investors in this way is exactly what you just said, the value of not just, I mean, not just Northwell uh, Ventures investing, but um, but but any, you know, being able to harness any one of those strategic uh, investment groups investing into a, a startup company. Exactly. Yeah, no, we've we've now um, come to look at a bunch of companies together, and it's been extremely helpful in in cardiology, GI, and a couple other areas, and it's. Um, your your ability shifting gears is a little bit to um, to really get to the heart of the matter because it's not just getting buy in but getting um, you know reasons not to buy in. Uh, one of the companies that we looked at recently in cardiology, we I think I think we all were surprised when when we when we got him on the phone and and there was like a 30, 40 minute history lesson of this area of cardiology. Um, and all the the uh, the ups and downs, the promise, the, uh, the things that had to work because it was desperately needed, but didn't matter. 
Um, and other things, you know, that take twists and turns because they fill a corporate need, wind up doing, um, wind up getting bought out and then they die inside a big company. Um, but, uh, you know, before I err on the side of, of, of going too long, because I, I know we can, we can reprise this with, with part two, um, uh, any, any, um, any any thoughts on 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 the current state of, of venture or anything in particular about companies that for for those listeners that are entrepreneurs, um, you know above and beyond what you said because you you both have given some extremely good points, but about what it takes to succeed, you know, and it could be as wide ranging. I don't care, filling a need, um, et cetera. Any 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 thoughts, Eric? You go. Okay. <laughs> I think I, I think you have to you have to hit large enough strategic problems, um, but also be fo- focused. I mean, that's sort of a contradiction when I say that, because every you know, people are focused in, in and you have to really think about this is the entrepreneurial perspective uh, for entrepreneurs. You have to think about what syndicate I'm creating and what value they will add. And how much capital do I really and truly need to build a strategically relevant product or solution? Most of the companies that we see, and this is not a knock on you know major institutional venture capital, but it is a different model where people are you know these institutional VCs are looking to put. A trim, I mean, their business model is about putting capital to work, investors' money to work into these companies. So, you know, they don't generally they don't really worry about the dilutionary aspects because they they typically reserve capital for follow-ons. Second, there are a lot of them are shooting for sort of moonshot ideas, and they think about in aggregate their portfolio, and and you know. If 75% of their portfolio, you know, filters, peters out and are losses, that's fine because they've got another 25% that are, you know, 10, 10 times their, their invested capital. And, and so as an entrepreneur, you, you know, you could be at the mercy of being in that 75%. Um, And so you really want to think about what problems you're attacking and most of these institutional VCs want to attack the really big moonshot I- problems and ideas, but that may not be necessarily what's best for an entrepreneur trying to build a product and get uh, and, and you know get to a, a reasonable liquidity event, um, because it's not just about you know finding the next unicorn. There are plenty of companies and products that you can build that are niche that fulfill strategic problems in the marketplace that you can then build upon, build another product. Uh, but if you have the right team in place with sort of a good product that's fulfilling a strategic need, you can always continue to build on, on top of that. Excellent. Any, anything to add, Matt? No, I mean, that was that was well said. I'm going to add two, two things. One is around specifically provider venture groups, and the other is more of a broad statement of venture. And, and on the provider side, I will say that I think going forward, um, a lesson to take away from over the, even this period, but even before that, is that I think people have made mistakes in the past believing that uh, – 
they needed or wanted to invest only primarily in those companies in which their system was a customer of, believing that you know you're adding significant value just because you're 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 purchasing from them. Where we all know that you know not all companies uh, make good venture investments for a variety of reasons, but I think we can save that for another day. So I think going forward, I think you'll see a lot of provider groups understanding that um, because you know a lot of those investments I think have been exposed in this environment. And then secondly, I think going forward, you know, I think you know, especially in healthcare, it's going to be very simple. Uh, you know, you stick to that quadruple aim around the opportunities that you're looking at, you know, does it make healthcare more accessible? Um, does it make it more personalized on the, uh, on the end user, on the patient? Is it lowering the cost of healthcare? And then finally, is it leading to better outcomes? And I think, you know, if you stick to that, uh, those core principles, you know, you're, you're probably going to find or, you know, take through uh, really meaningful companies uh, so that the providers can can utilize them uh, and and you know lead lead to those those four um, those four goals. So again, add, really simple. I, I, I want to add I want to add one one small comment to uh, to what you just said, which is on the the outcomes and the ROI. Hospitals, we see so many opportunities out there that are they're 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 touchy feely. And it's patient experience. And, uh, and, and you know, you, you sit there and you say, yeah, this would definitely be impactful to the patient experience and would, you know, likely provide a better patient experience. But it's really difficult to quantify by how much. Yeah. And when it, and, and where a lot of these conversations break down is that they don't have really robust you know, clinical research and information of how much it increases the patient experience and what that translates to from a pricing perspective. And most of these companies, business models break down around pricing. Uh, and, and so, you know, that's something that you just, you have to really find your value proposition and your ROI from day one. And, you know, or there has to be a very, Kind of cogent business plan in order to, with a strategic partner to get that information and flesh that out because the opportunity will never be successful in healthcare in providers if you don't have a robust enough uh, administratively focused ROI, but also a clinically focused ROI as well. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Very helpful. Uh, I appreciate the time. Um, and I think, uh, I have a uh, suspicion we'll be back doing this again soon, maybe talking about some of the prospects we're seeing and, and, and acting on, uh, and Eric, I need to get you and Partha in here to talk wow. more in more detail about Clarapath. Right, that would be great. I, All right. Well, thank you. You provide a great background and perspective on on sort of the the genesis, and there's a lot of really interesting things about you know how we're thinking about changing and altering the industry of pathology, but doing so in an incremental way. That's the important thing. Excellent, and then, and and then we can also get into the whole concept of standardization of tissue sampling for feeding these AI engines. Um, which which I'm probably going to cut you off now before you uh, 
uh, <laughs> before you take that and run with it. So, <laughs> um, and we'll save that for the next recording. So thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. It's fun.